Serial killers like John Wayne Glover are extremely rare. In most cases of serial murder, the perpetrators very rarely leave a calling card, a repetitive clue or injury, telling investigators that it is the work of the same killer. Some serial killers prefer to abduct their victims, have their way with them, and then conceal their bodies. Others use different methods of murder from one killing to the next, while others blatantly go about killing those around them, such as family members or workmates, until police finally catch up with them. Calling card serial killers are the ones that keep committing identical murders time and again until they are caught, although some are never caught. Calling card serial killers are also the killers that get the most publicity as the public is aware of each killing as it takes place and is aware that there is a maniac on the loose, unlike when the victims are abducted and concealed and investigators can only suspect it is the work of the one killer. As a consequence, these murderers are certainly the best-known serial killers in history. The Boston Strangler, Jack the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, Australia's William the Mutilator MacDonald, and New York's Son of Sam, who went one step further and taunted police with letters telling them when his next killing would be, were all calling card serial killers. So was John Wayne Glover. Each time Glover committed serial murder, he ruthlessly bashed his victims to death with a hammer in public places in broad daylight and then throttled the last breath out of them with their own undergarments. The killings were unmistakably the work of one person. John Glover was the granny killer, the monster of Mosman, a vicious and calculating serial killer who deep-etched a macabre niche for himself into the history of Australia's most despicable murderers. Glover was the only serial killer who specialized in bashing and murdering little old ladies. A bully, John Glover forced his defenseless victims into alcoves and alleyways with his superior strength and then set upon them with his fists and his trademark hammer, repeatedly bashing them about the head until they fell to his feet, saturated in their own blood. Not content with bashing alone, he would then subject them to the ultimate humiliation and gaze upon their most private parts while he removed their pantyhose and then throttle his victims with them. This final indignity would become his calling card, and detectives knew that the killings were unmistakably the work of the one killer. And because Australian police and police throughout the world, for that matter, had never experienced such a case, investigators had little or nothing to go on. There were no guidelines to steer those trying to find the elusive murderer. If there had been, then Glover might have been brought to justice earlier. In the end, it was a combination of police diligence and an almost pathological urge to get caught that brought him to trial. Towards the end of his reign of terror, Glover was leaving clues all over town. Tragically, if this vital information had reached them a lot earlier, then perhaps one life, or possibly two, may have been saved. But John Wayne Glover was the least likely person you would suspect to be a serial killer. He was as inconspicuous as he was evil, a big friendly man in his late fifties. He was the backbone of middle-class society and the type of guy you could leave in charge of your kids or ask to keep an eye on your house while you were away. Married with two daughters, Glover and his loved ones lived a contented lifestyle in their comfortable family home in the fashionable harborside Sydney suburb of Mossman on Sydney Harbor. But it was mainly in these tranquil surroundings that he would bash and kill his victims and as if to enhance this tragic deception of normalcy, Glover was a volunteer charity worker with the Senior Citizen Society, enlisted among his friends a former mayor of Mosman, with whom he would often have a drink at his favorite watering hole, the Mosman Returned Servicemen's Leagues Club. But Glover's real charity was himself. 
he would spend the proceeds of his muggings and murders on gambling and drinking. To add to his image of the regular middle-aged man, Glover held down a job as a sales representative with the 4 and 20 Pie Company. His warm handshake and jolly smile endeared new acquaintances to him immediately. He was a walking advertisement for his product, the type of bloke that it was nice to have around. But beneath that jovial exterior lurked one of the most twisted serial killers in the sad history of Australian crime, a vicious murderer who preyed on frail old women. If John Glover had been insane, then the grief-stricken relatives of his victims may have found some consolation, however minuscule, in knowing that their loved ones met their cruel demise at the hands of a maniac, someone who was driven to heinous crime by an unbalanced mind. But that was not to be the case. At his trial, John Glover pleaded not guilty to his ghastly crimes on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but the jury could not accept this. In fact, the jury didn't even think he was temporarily insane at the time of the killings. Instead, they agreed with a prominent Sydney psychiatrist who studied the case and said, he built up a pile of hostility and aggression from childhood against his mother and then his mother-in-law. She was the lightning conductor and when she died, he had to take it out on other people. This is a very unusual case because there are very few mass murderers and most of them are mad and have an organic disease of the brain. He is not mad. As the Crown Prosecutor maintained, Glover was very aware of what he was doing. As he killed, he was at the same time planning what to do with the contents of his victims' purses. His killings weren't sexually motivated. John Glover was impotent and not the least interested in sex. The pantyhose wrapped tightly around his victims' necks was used to ensure that they were dead. But at the same time, it would make police think that the crime was the work of a sex killer. Glover knew exactly what he was doing. Only a cool, clear, sane mind would risk the possibility of being caught by lingering for that extra minute or so to remove the pantyhose and strangle his victim with them. But it was worth the chance to throw the police off the scent. No. Insanity or lust was not the cause behind these cowardly murders and muggings. Glover's actual motives were as old as crime itself. Revenge and greed. Combined with cowardice, they made the fatal combination that would keep Glover killing until the law finally caught up with him. John Glover was chronically addicted to poker machines. He would stand for hours virtually pouring money through the slot machines at the Mosman RSL Club. The easiest way for Glover to get more money was to steal it. As police would reveal later, Glover was a convicted thief and had a record of cowardly attacks on defenseless women. When he migrated to Australia from England in 1956, the 24-year-old Glover already had a criminal record dating back to 1947 for stealing clothing and handbags. Almost immediately after his arrival, he was convicted on two counts of larceny in Victoria and one of theft in New South Wales, and in 1962, he was convicted on two counts of assaulting females in Melbourne, two of indecent assault, one of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and four counts of larceny. Incredibly, he got off with three years probation. As in the later murders and assaults, the Victorian attacks were extremely savage and violent, and on each occasion, articles of clothing had been forcibly removed. Fortunately, Glover had been disturbed before the assaults could develop into rape or murder. Otherwise, his killing spree may have started earlier. On each occasion, the Melbourne victims were violently and repeatedly bashed about the head and body. They were forced to the ground as the attacker frantically ripped off their clothes before their screams alerted local residents who rang the police and came to their aid. 
Those first on the scene were amazed at the ferocity of the attacks. The second victim, a 25-year-old woman walking home from a meeting at 10.30 at night, was found on the front lawn of a home. Dazed and in shock, she told the police that the man had followed her down the dark suburban street and chased her when she tried to run away. She screamed as he knocked her to the ground unconscious. She awoke on the lawn to find herself bleeding profusely and with her undergarments in a state of disarray. The attacker had fled when her screams aroused the neighborhood. Residents reported seeing a young man running into a nearby yard, and prompt police action saw the apprehension of 29-year-old Glover, then a television rigger with the Australian Broadcasting Commission, and living in the quiet, tree-lined Melbourne suburb of Camberwell. Glover said that he had fought with his girlfriend and was emotionally strung out. He was charged and after spending the night in jail was released on bail the following morning. As he was leaving the police station, Glover was stopped by two other detectives who had heard of his arrest. They wanted to have a chat with him about a similar assault a couple of weeks earlier. At first, Glover denied any knowledge of the incident, but under intense questioning, he confessed to the previous assault and was taken back to the station and recharged. In light of Glover's previous convictions and the ferocity of the attacks, the detectives were astonished when he was let off with a good behavior bond and three years probation. Retribution finally caught up with John Wayne Glover in 1965, but only in a small way, when he was convicted on a peeping Tom charge of being unlawfully on the premises. He was sentenced to three months in prison, but served only six weeks behind bars. Following his release from prison, Glover seemingly changed his ways, and apart from a minor shoplifting charge in 1978, he would not come to police notice again for many years. However, police now agree that it would have been almost impossible for a criminal of Glover's nature to keep his hands to himself for the following 25 years. In fact, some police wonder if Glover could have helped with inquires into at least five other unsolved murders, with similar modus operandi, committed between 1965 and 1989. In Melbourne in 1968, Glover married Jacqueline Gale, Gay Rolls. They had met while Glover was working at a wine and spirits store in Melbourne's inner city. Gay's father, John Rolls, felt that the quiet, handsome young man was a good match for their beloved daughter. At first, his wife Essie Rolls agreed, but it didn't take her long to figure out that Glover may have something to hide. Even though she was from a well-to-do middle-class Sydney background, Gay loved the gentle English migrant who had arrived in Australia in the 1950s with only 30 shillings, about $3, to his name. Glover came from a very poor working-class family and told his few friends that he had come to Australia to start a new life and leave behind a traumatic and disruptive family background. With her parents' blessings, Gay and John became engaged and married shortly after. In 1970, the happy couple moved to Sydney to live with Gay's parents in the comfortable family home at Mossman. Gay's father was very ill, and he asked the newlyweds if they would move into the house to keep him company. John Glover was delighted. The poor English migrant with a record of theft and violence had done well. To move to Mossman and into a two-story house near the harbor was more than he could ever have dreamed possible. Like all of the decisions in their married life, it was a joint one between John and Gay to move into his in-law's home. It was here that Glover's hatred for his mother-in-law, Essie, erupted. A separate wing was built on the house so that Gay, John, and their two daughters, Kelly and Marnie, could live an almost separate existence from the demanding Essie Rolls. 
Glover would say at his trial that he hated Essie, that the atmosphere was always tense, and that the situation became even worse when Gay's father died in 1981. Glover told the court that Essie was a tyrant. Police had no trouble confirming this when they interviewed staff of the nursing home in Mossman, where she died in 1988. To add to Glover's domestic woes, in 1982, his mother, Frida, migrated to Australia and turned up on his door. Glover loathed her almost as much as he loathed his mother-in-law. Frida Underwood, as she was now known, had been married four times and had had numerous lovers both during and between her marriages. When she tried to move in as a temporary companion to Essie Rolls, it was more than Glover could handle. The last thing he wanted was someone in the house who could bring him undone with tales of his unfortunate childhood. This was the type of ammunition that Essie Rolls wanted. It was a shock to the system, Glover would say at his trial. Just the thought of having them both under the one roof was more than anyone could stand. At Glover's instigation, his mother moved to Gosford, 100 kilometers north of Sydney, where she died of breast cancer in 1988. Glover was diagnosed as having the same cancer, although it is extremely rare among men. After a mastectomy, Glover developed a prostate condition and became sexually impotent. In evidence, psychiatrist Dr. Bob Strum said that he believed this to be the time when Glover's life changed. It was almost as though his mother was reaching out from the grave and striking him again, he told the jury. Despite the family dramas, Gay knew nothing of her husband's dark past, and he never did anything to indicate that he was anything other than an adoring husband and father to their two daughters. The start of it all, as Glover would refer to it later, came on the 11th of January, 1989, when he saw 84-year-old Mrs. Margaret Todd Hunter walking along Quiet Hale Road in Mossman. He parked his car, and after he was satisfied that no one was looking, he punched the unsuspecting victim in the face with a swinging right hook and relieved her of her handbag containing $209. As he fled down the street with her bag, Mrs. Todd Hunter called out, You rotten bugger! Glover went to the Mosman RSL, where he drank and played the poker machines with the stolen money. Investigating police put the incident down to a mugging and suspected that someone saw the elderly woman with the cash and waited for the right moment. In the drug-ravaged suburbs of Sydney, muggings are a daily occurrence, and while the case was investigated thoroughly, little hope was given of recovering the money or finding the perpetrator of such a cowardly act. Mrs. Todd Hunter survived the ordeal but was badly bruised and shaken. As it eventuated, she was also extremely lucky. Glover's next victim was not so fortunate. On the 1st of March, 1989, he had a few drinks at the Mosman RSL after work, and mid-afternoon was heading for his car down busy military road when he spotted Gwendolyn Mitchellhill going home from the shops at a slow pace with her walking stick. Glover hurriedly returned to his car and tucked a hammer into his belt. Then he slowly followed the old woman to the seclusion of the entry foyer of her retirement village. As she turned the key in the lock, he brought the hammer down with a crashing blow to the back of her skull. He then repeatedly bashed her so viciously about the head and body that he broke several ribs in her tiny jockey weight frame. He fled the scene, taking her wallet containing $100. Incredibly, Mrs. Mitchellhill was still alive when two schoolboys found her, but she became the granny killer's first official murder victim just a few minutes after the police and ambulance arrived. As Mrs. Mitchellhill drew her last breath, Glover was sitting in his lounge room wondering out loud to his wife what the sirens in the distance were all about. 
Again, the police were baffled, but there was nothing concrete to link the two attacks. There was a theory that they could be the work of one person, but it was a long shot. Police finally assumed that it was yet another mugging that had gone disastrously wrong. Ten weeks later, in the late afternoon of May 9th, Glover was heading for the Mosman RSL Club on Military Road when he saw Lady Winifred Ashton walking slowly towards him in a red raincoat and with the aid of a walking stick. Lady Ashton had been playing bingo at the RSL and was heading toward her home on nearby Raglan Street. Glover pulled on a pair of gloves and followed her into the foyer of her apartment building where he attacked her with his hammer and threw her to the ground in the rubbish bin alcove. Although suffering from lymph cancer, the tiny and frail Lady Ashton put up an incredible struggle, and Glover later confessed, At one stage she almost had me, until I fell on top of her and repeatedly bashed her head against the concrete. Lady Winifred Ashton was 84 years old. Lady Ashton was unconscious as John Glover removed her pantyhose and strangled her with them. Although no sexual act took place, this gruesome ritual would become Glover's calling card. And then... As if in respect for the dead woman, Glover laid her walking stick and shoes at her feet before he headed off with her purse, which contained $100. Glover later commented to the bar staff at the Mosman RSL that he hoped that the sirens they could hear just around the corner weren't for another mugging. He said this as he calmly fed the contents of Lady Ashton's purse through the poker machines. Only now did police believe they had a maniacal killer on the loose. There were too many similarities. To date, all of the three victims were wealthy old ladies. All came from the same suburb. All were assaulted or killed in a similar manner, and all were robbed of their handbags. This was no ordinary mugger. Although it was now a strong possibility, the thought of one individual seeking out and murdering defenseless old women was almost beyond comprehension. At the time, police prayed that they were wrong, but secretly they knew the truth. They had a homicidal maniac on their hands, but the chinks were starting to show in the maniac's armor. In a bizarre twist of events, Glover started molesting old women confined to their beds in the nursing homes he visited in the course of his rounds as a pie salesman. This was an aspect of the case that detectives and psychiatrists would later find confusing. Glover maintained that he had no sexual interest in anyone. He never sexually attacked any of his robbery and murder victims, Yet here he was, prowling around nursing homes and assaulting bedridden old women. Local police investigated, but the alarm bells didn't ring. The molestations were not connected to the murders at the time, though at a later date, the incidents would play an important part in identifying Glover. On his nursing home rounds, Glover first molested 77-year-old Mrs. Marjorie Mosley on June 6, 1989, at the Wesley Gardens Retirement Home in Belrose, which is quite a distance from Mosman. Mrs. Mosley reported the incident and said that the man put his hand under her nightie. She couldn't recall what he looked like. Then, on June 24, Glover visited the Caroline Chisholm Nursing Home in nearby Lane Cove. He leisurely strolled upstairs where he lifted the dress of an elderly woman and fondled her buttocks. Moving to the room next door, he slid his hand down the front of another woman's nightdress and stroked her breasts. The terrified woman cried out, and Glover was questioned briefly by staff but not held as he made a hurried exit. The incidents were investigated by local police but were not connected to the murders in Mosman. 
and it was a long time before it was thought that this information may be of any use to the Granny Killer Task Force. By the time the connection was made, there had been more attacks, more bashings, and more murders. On August 8, 1989, Glover bashed elderly Effie Carney in a quiet street in Linfield, not far from Mossman, and stole her groceries. On October 6th, he passed himself off as a doctor and ran his hand up the dress of Phyllis McNeil, a patient at the Wybenia Nursing Home at Neutral Bay, the harborside suburb next, but one to Mossman. Again, he eluded capture when the blind old woman called for help. It seemed that Glover could walk in and out of hospitals as he pleased. No one suspected the pastry salesman. Not once, through that series of molestations, was he ever identified. On October 18th, Glover struck again, and this time with a ferocity that would convince police that their worst nightmare was a reality, that the attacks were the work of one man. But in what would later prove to be a cruel irony, this assault would start them looking for the wrong type of offender. In the mid-afternoon of October 18th, Glover struck up a conversation with 86-year-old Mrs. Doris Cox as she slowly made her way home along Spit Road, Mossman. He walked with her into the secluded stairwell of her retirement village, then he attacked her from behind, using his entire body weight to smash her face into a brick wall. She collapsed at his feet. After finding nothing that he wanted in her handbag, Glover left her for dead and went home. Mrs. Cox, an Alzheimer's victim, somehow survived the attack. But she was hazy about the description of her attacker, even though she saw him while he walked with her. In her understandably confused state, she thought that her attacker was a younger man and assisted the police as best as she could in preparing an identical drawing. At last, the police believed they had a lead. To the head of the task force, Detective Inspector Mike Hagen, the new information made sense. He suspected that the killer was a local because of the close proximity of the killings and muggings. As well, police psychological profiles suggested the killer would most likely be a teenager with a grandmother fixation. And Mrs. Cox thought that she had been bashed by a young man. Mike Hagen now concentrated the task force energies in search of a young local who may be acting strangely or had any possible relationship or connection to the victims. Tragically, this theory was only right to the extent it suggested the killer was a local. It would almost appear that some unknown force was protecting Glover, as his next attack would lead police to doubt that the man they sought was even a local. The murder of 85-year-old Mrs. Margaret Pahood on November 2nd was undoubtedly the work of the granny killer. She was bashed on the back of the head by a blunt instrument as she made her way home along a laneway off busy Longueville Road, Lane Cove. Coronial evidence presented at the trial indicated that the attack was over in seconds, and from the force of the blows taken by her massively fractured skull, the coroner concluded that it was doubtful that the poor old woman felt a thing. Glover took her handbag and tucked it inside his shirt with the hammer and calmly left the scene. There were no known witnesses, although Mrs. Pahood's body was found within minutes by a passing schoolgirl who at first thought that it was a bundle of clothing dumped in the laneway. As the police and ambulance sirens wailed their way to the murder scene, Glover examined the contents of Mrs. Pahood's purse on the grounds of a nearby golf club where he pocketed $300 and hid the bag in a drain. He then went to the Mosman RSL club where he drank and gambled with Margaret Pahood's money. By now, police were almost frantic with frustration. 
This murder was committed about five kilometers from Mossman, and their theory about it being a local was losing credibility. Now they decided they were looking for a teenager who came from just about anywhere. Baffled, and no closer to solving the case than they were when it had all started, ten months earlier, the police intensified their investigations. Reinforcements were called in, and Australia's biggest task force to ever search for one man was formed. Thirty-five of the state's most experienced detectives gathered at police headquarters and were told by Task Force Chief Hagen that they must work day and night and investigate every lead, however minute, until the killer was caught. A $20,000 reward was posted by the New South Wales government. Composite pictures of the suspect were left in shops, service stations, and newsagents. Meanwhile, Hagen was becoming a nervous wreck and later said, I've had nearly 30 years on the job, and I think the worst month of my police experience was November 1989. You get so frustrated with yourself and those around you when you can't get a result, and that's very stressful. You'd go home, and you're on tenderhooks all night. I wasn't eating or sleeping, and this cowardly killer kept murdering frail old ladies. Hagen spent most of the day after Mrs. Pahood's death at the murder scene, yet, as the hours passed, he had to face the grim reality that the killer had eluded them yet again without leaving so much as a trace. Exhausted from the lack of sleep, by the end of the day, Hagen called into the Pennant Hills police station on his way home to answer an urgent message on his beeper. He dialed task force headquarters. His knees sagged as he was told that they had yet another body, another pantyhose strangling. He later said, I just can't explain my feelings that night to have just come from a murder and to be told there's another one. It was terrible. We'd had two serial murders within 24 hours. We'd never heard of such a thing before. The Granny Killer's fourth victim was 81-year-old Miss Olive Cleveland, a resident of the Wesley Gardens Retirement Village at Belrose on the Upper North Shore. Glover had called there in the early afternoon and, unable to get a pie order out of catering manager Rob Morell, he left. On his way through the garden, he struck up a conversation with Mrs. Cleveland, who was sitting on a bench reading. When she got up and walked toward the main building, Glover seized her from behind and forced her into a secluded side walkway. Here he repeatedly slammed her head to the concrete before he removed her pantyhose and knotted them tightly around her neck. Glover then made off with $60 from her handbag. Unbelievably, no one connected this murder with the attack on Mrs. Mosley at the Wesley home only six months earlier. The task force still had no knowledge of the previous offense. If they had, they may have discovered that a portly middle-aged man with gray hair was in the vicinity on both occasions. There were no clues, and the seemingly invisible murderer vanished into the afternoon. Again, the task force was baffled. Surely someone must have seen something. They checked and cross-checked witnesses' statements and canvassed retirement villages, joggers, cab and bus drivers, and junk mail deliverers. They even sent a history of the case to the FBI in the vain hope of a lead. No luck. Sydney's lower North Shore was now under siege. People stayed off the streets, and anyone with elderly neighbors or relatives was checking on them at regular intervals. Old women were being driven to and from the shops. No one was taking chances, and still police investigations continued. The checking and cross-checking went on. A week after the Olive Cleveland murder, the police got their first break as the agonizingly slow cross-checking paid off, and a pattern emerged. 
In several of the attacks, the victims recalled seeing a gray-haired, well-dressed, middle-aged man. Now the very first victim, Mrs. Margaret Todd Hunter, recalled a man of that description passing her just before she was attacked from behind and robbed of her purse. And Mrs. Effie Carney, who was bashed and robbed of her groceries in August, also described her assailant as a well-built, mature man with gray hair. Both victims described their attacker as an average type of person. At last, police realized that they may have been looking for the wrong man, and that their killer could well slip in and out of places unnoticed, because he was simply not the noticeable type. Armed with this sense of what the granny killer looked like, the police still had to find their average man. On the 23rd of November, another body turned up, the third for the month. While purchasing whiskey in Mossman, Glover spotted 92-year-old Muriel Falconer struggling down the street with a load of shopping. He returned to his car, collected his hammer and gloves, and followed her to her front door. As Mrs. Falconer was partially deaf and blind, she did not notice Glover slip through the door behind her with his gloves on and his hammer raised. He silenced her by holding his hand over her mouth as he hit her repeatedly about the head and neck. As she fell to the floor, he started to remove Mrs. Falconer's pantyhose, but she regained consciousness and cried out. Glover struck her again and again with the hammer, and only when he was satisfied that she was unconscious did he remove the undergarments and throttle her with them. He closed the front door for privacy. Then he searched her purse and the rest of the house before he left quietly with $100 and his hammer and gloves in a carry bag. It wasn't until the following afternoon when a neighbor dropped by that the body was discovered. Although the murder scene was chaotic, this was the first real chance the police had to obtain clues. This crime had been committed indoors and nothing had been disturbed since. They found a perfect footprint in blood on the carpet, their first solid clue since the investigation had begun. However, Hagen still needed to get lucky to apprehend this person, who seemed to be able to come and go as he pleased, without appearing in any way out of place. The break came on January 11, 1990, when Glover slipped up badly, but it was a further three weeks before the incident reached the ears of the task force. On that January day, Glover called the Greenwich Hospital for an appointment with its administrator, Mr. Reg Cadman. Afterward, Glover, dressed in his blue and white salesman's jacket and carrying a clipboard, walked into a hospital ward where four very old and very sick women lay in their beds. He approached Mrs. Daisy Roberts, who was suffering from advanced cancer, asking if she was losing any body heat, then pulled up her nightie and began to prod her in an indecent manner. Mrs. Roberts became alarmed and rang the buzzer beside her bed. A sister at the hospital, Pauline Davis, answered the call and found Glover in the ward. "'Who the hell are you?' she called out when Glover ran from the ward. She chased him and took down the registration number of his car as he hurriedly drove off. Sister Davis called the police, and later that day, two young, uniformed policewomen from the local Chatswood police station arrived to investigate. The hospital staff was able to identify and name Glover, as he was well-known and popular from previous visits on his pastry round. When the police returned a week later with a photo of John Glover, Sister Davis positively identified him, and Mrs. Roberts said that it looked most like him. At last, a breakthrough. But for some unaccountable reason, another three weeks were to pass before anyone reported the incident to the Granny Killer Task Force. Detectives from Chatswood Police Station confirmed Glover's name with his employers. 
rang him at home, and asked him to drop in for a chat about the assault at 5 p.m. the following day. When Glover hadn't turned up by 6 p.m., police called his home where his wife told them that he had attempted to take his life and was in Royal North Shore Hospital. Police went to the hospital, but Glover was too sick to be interviewed. Staff handed police a last note that included the words, No more grannies. Grannies. And still, it didn't register to the constables that the middle-aged portly man with the gray hair who was recovering in the hospital after assaulting an elderly patient in a nursing home may be able to help them with their inquiries. The police returned to interview Glover on January 18th and, with his reluctant approval, picked up a Polaroid photo of him to show to Sister Davis and Mrs. Roberts. After the positive identification, one of the officers told Davis and Roberts, we know who it is, we know all about him. Incredibly, another two weeks would pass before the note and the photo wound up on Mike Hagen's desk. As soon as he saw them, he knew he had his man, proving it was a different story. Head of the detectives in the task force, Detective Sergeant Dennis O'Toole said, we still had no evidence. If he had said to us, I don't want to talk, we couldn't have proved any of the murders. Still, the photo matched the many descriptions of the mysterious gray-haired middle-aged man, and in his job as a sales representative, Glover could have been at any of the murder scenes. Detectives interviewed Glover. He denied anything to do with the alleged assault on the elderly woman at the nursing home. Police gave him the impression that they were satisfied and left him feeling confident that his luck still held. But John Wayne Glover was under around-the-clock surveillance, with six detectives assigned to follow him and find out every conceivable thing about him. Even at this stage, the police didn't have a scrap of evidence that would stand up in court. But in their minds, there was no question that Glover was their man. Hagen had to make an agonizing choice. Go in now and let the granny killer know that they were on to him and take the odds of not finding any solid evidence that would hold up in court. Or sit tight, wait for him to stalk another old woman and catch him in the act. Hagen opted for the latter. Sadly, it was a decision that would cost another life. The police didn't let him out of their sight, but Glover didn't put a foot wrong. He occasionally stopped to look at old women, but his behavior was exemplary. On March 19th, Glover called at the home of a lady friend, Joan Sinclair, at 10 a.m. He spruced himself up in the rear vision mirror before he was let in at the front door. Observing police had no reason to believe that it was anything other than a social visit. Besides, the killer had only ever struck in the afternoon, and only with elderly women. Still, they watched every corner of the house. At 1 p.m., there was no sign of Glover or any sign of life from the house. The police surveillance team became concerned. At 5 p.m., all was still quiet, and at 6 p.m., deciding that all was not well, they got the okay from Hagen to go in. Detective Sergeant Miles O'Toole and Detectives Paul Mager and Paul Jacob noticed the pools of blood almost as soon as they crept in the door. With guns drawn, they tiptoed from room to room, covering each other, but careful not to be caught in a crossfire should the madman leap at them with an axe or a shotgun. They saw a hammer lying in a pool of drying blood on the mat. As they peered further around the doorway, they saw a pair of woman's panties and a man's shirt covered in blood. Then a woman's body came into view, Joan Sinclair's battered head was wrapped in a bundle of blood-soaked towels. She was naked from the waist down and the pantyhose was tied around her neck. 
Her genitals were damaged, but Glover would later deny sexually interfering with her. It was unmistakably the work of the granny killer. But where was he? Was he waiting in ambush? Detective Mager almost breathed a sigh of relief as he found feet sticking out of the end of the bath. An unconscious, naked, gray-haired, chubby man was lying in the tub. One wrist was slashed and the air was heavy with the smell of alcohol and vomit. The relieved detectives prayed that he was still alive. Their prayers were answered. The man in the bath was John Wayne Glover, the granny killer. After he recovered in the hospital, Glover told police of the final chapter in the granny killer murders. Glover had known Joan Sinclair for some time and they were extremely fond of each other in a platonic relationship. However, after he entered the house on March 19th, Glover got his hammer out of his briefcase and bashed Mrs. Sinclair about the head with it. Glover then removed her pantyhose and strangled her with them, and with others he found in her bedroom. This sequence of events completely baffled the police. Murdering Mrs. Sinclair was in many ways out of character with the other murders and bashings. Glover rolled Mrs. Sinclair's body over on the mat, wrapped four towels around her massive head wound to stem the flow of blood, and then dragged her body across the room, leaving a trail of blood. When he had done that, he ran a bath, washed down a handful of Valium with a bottle of Vat 69, slashed his left wrist, and lay in the tub to die. But he didn't die, and the police were glad of that. They felt that if his action had been successful, then there would always be speculation as to whether Glover was the right man. Glover further brushed away their concerns by confessing to everything. Nonetheless, he frustrated police and psychiatrists alike with his inability or unwillingness to set out the reasons for his acts. The question, why, was repeatedly met with the same answer. I don't know. I just see these ladies and it seems to trigger something. I just have to be violent towards them. When he was charged with murdering six elderly women, his wife Gay and their two daughters, both in their late teens, were stunned. There had never been the slightest inclination that the man they loved as husband and father was the granny killer. At his trial in November 1991, John Wayne Glover pleaded not guilty to six counts of murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility. In other words, Glover claimed that he was temporarily insane when he carried out the murders. The jury did not agree, and it took them just two and a half hours to find Glover both guilty and sane. Justice Wood sentenced Glover to six life terms of imprisonment and said, The period since January 1989 has been one of intense and serious crime, involving extreme violence inflicted on elderly women, accompanied by the theft or robbery of their property. In any view, the prisoner has shown himself to be an exceedingly dangerous person, and that view was mirrored by the opinions of the psychiatrists who have given evidence at his trial. I have no alternative other than to impose the maximum available sentence, which means that the prisoner will be required to spend the remainder of his natural life in jail. It is inappropriate to express any date as to release on parole. Having regard to those life sentences, this is not a case where the prisoner may ever be released pursuant to order of this court. Then, in 2005, John Wayne Glover finally did something right. He hanged himself in prison on September 9th, closing a sad chapter of the American serial killer history. 